This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Guys, we have a great episode for you here today. We are going down south, Alabama, with my friend, Jeremy Ferguson. Jeremy is a wildlife habitat consultant down there. Uh, he's he's done a lot of things. He's a he's a real estate broker, um, owns his own private company, uh, also starting a new podcast and media company called Southern U. The guy, I can relate, the guy's got his hands in a lot of different fires. Is that how you say that? Hands in a lot of fires, pokers in a lot of fires. He's burning it at both ends. Um, him and his team of guys do a good job. And it was really cool to kind of compare some of the the habitat uh you know, implementations and, and strategies and projects that we do up here to guys from the South and the Southeast. So I know we have a lot of listeners down South. Um, I have some good friends that listen down there. And uh, this is this is very cool to kind of hear a little bit different take with just different habitats. A lot of the principles um, have some nuances to them, which is pretty cool. So we, we get into it. We talk with Jeremy Ferguson. We talk about his background, how we got into habitat. Uh, some of his top three Habitat strategies, his, his go-to strategies down there when he's working on a new farm for a client. Um, some some differences between the Midwest and, and down south that, you know, maybe aren't, maybe the Habitat project's the same, but there are, like I said, some nuances between how you do it. Uh, we talk about hinge cutting. We talk about food plots. Um, Jeremy's a vitalized seed dealer. Uh, he's just a good old boy who really knows his stuff, and uh, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, again, fun guy relatable, smart guy. I uh, really enjoy the conversation. So here we go. Jeremy Ferguson from Alabama. Guys, I want to thank everybody who's leaving us great reviews. I sent out six more decals yesterday. 
So uh, those who have emailed me their their information, I responded with a sent email. If you got that sent email, you have decals coming on the way. Uh, if you left us a review and you have not gotten a decal, email me, info at habitatpodcast.com with your info, and I will get you a decal shipped out right away. What we do want to announce, though, is the Downburst Cedar Survey Giveaway with the Exodus Rival Cell Cam. We ended up having about 72, 75 uh, entries right there somewhere. So still pretty good odds to win a $200 cell camera. And uh, guys, Doug and I just want to thank you. Um, Doug, especially thanks everybody for for the feedback that y'all provided on his downburst cedar. Um, he's making some changes. Going to make this thing accept, you know, diverse seed mixes, the whole thing. Doug's a mastermind. You got you to see how his brain works and, and see this thing for yourself. If you haven't already, check it out. But the survey really helped Doug get an idea of what us habitat managers like, don't like, want to see improved, et cetera. So thank you very much for everybody who participated. And we are giving away an Exodus cell camera. Right, Actually, we're giving away a $200 gift card, which is worth more than the camera, um, to ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Uh, Doug drew the winner earlier today. It is Jared Havens. Jared Havens from Northern Michigan. Jared, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate all your support here at Habitat Podcasts. I know we're talking about a land plan together right now. Um, get up and see your place up there and and help out. I just really appreciate your support. And uh, man, random number generator got Jared Havens a $200 gift card to Exodus Outdoor Gear for the survey that was on HabitatPodcast.com to, to help Doug out. If you guys would like, you still want to give Doug some feedback, that survey is still available in the journal at HabitatPodcast.com along with every other one of our sponsors. I'd like to thank the rest of our partners. I want to thank United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties, Acres.com, Morse Nursery, Packer Max, Cultipackers, Vitalize Seed Company, Downburst Cedars, and Exodus Outdoor Gear. Man, we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Have you guys used a Packer Max Cultipacker yet? I know that being the first partner of the Habitat Podcast, I've been using one for over five years now. Guys, cultipacking is one of the highest um rated and highly overlooked part of your food plot system it helps maintain soil moisture keeps it in the soil improves seed to soil contact when you press those seeds into the dirt and ensures superior seed germination for all seed types i do not plant a food plot without cultipacking guys packer max and lincoln over there great company great people they have five different cultipackers available at packermax.com and they also have a roller crimper combo attachment for the packer max so that's what i use i can crimp i can pack i can do everything with my packer max crimper combo they even came out with a six foot unit at packermax.com guys be sure to utilize this piece of equipment when you're planting food plots to get the best success in your seed germination check them out packermax.com we have a code hpc25 at checkout to save money all right mr jeremy how you doing today sir doing good how are you good doing good it's you know early october i'm getting to go hunting this weekend trying to get work all wrapped up i'm in a pretty good mood at the moment what are you up to um about the same we're actually on the the road headed toward kansas now uh my business partner and my consulting business uh owns a outfitting business trophy class outfitters and we're actually headed up 
to hang stands and put cameras up and get everything ready for another season in the Flint Hills. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. Uh, I know Al told me a little bit about about that outfitter uh, when we talked a little while back. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty neat. You, you're the type of guy who's a lot like I believe a lot like me and and Al and, and Brian, where you got about 10 different things going. You got your hands in a little bit of everything and you, you stay busy and you like to yeah. uh, you like to manage the, the wildlife habitat. So it's kind of a great fit, in my opinion. That, that's it. I mean, I stay busy year round, whether it's hunting or management. Uh, I just got back from Montana and Wyoming just, just last week from pronghorn hunt with a buddy and uh, turn around, you know, headed back to Kansas. And then hopefully while we're going to Kansas, maybe fingers crossed with Alabama, we can actually get uh, right about 40, between 40 and 45 days of no rain where we are. So we've uh, just kind of thrown the brakes on things right now until we get some kind of meaningful moisture system coming. Yeah. Yeah. It, you, you, you broke up a little bit there. What, what's in Alabama? What's there for you? Uh, uh, well, we're, we're hoping to get some type of meaningful rain. Uh, uh, we're, we've probably got 40 to 45 days that, that we've been with no rain or no measurable rain. So, right. uh, we're, we're dry, man. That's this, that's so sad to hear. Like you know, last year we we're real dry as well. The spring were real dry. It's just, it's so weird because I was just outside looking at my lawn and it's like October and that stuff will not stop growing. Cause we've had, we had luckily decent moisture August and in September. And now the dews keeping everything going. I mean, I normally it's all fried up by now. And so I'm just, I feel a little bit lucky, a little bit blessed that we have a little bit of moisture when I know it's been tough for most folks. Oh yeah. Um, it's, you know, October, for us in, in Alabama is generally our driest month, but uh, August and September, you know, we're typically in a summer rain pattern, do fairly well with moisture, uh, but this is the driest I've seen since 2016, you know, oh. which was just a disaster. So, Well, hopefully you guys get some moisture here soon. I'll, I'll send one upstairs for you. I know, uh, Hey, I want to start kind of start this off by hearing a little bit about who you are, where you're from. I mean, I kind of already know, but love to love to have you explain to the listeners kind of how you got into what you're doing and, and tell your whole backstory. Well, I, I grew up in Marshall County in northeast Alabama. Uh, I did grow up hunting, but it wasn't something that was in my, you know, family. My my dad didn't hunt, brother didn't hunt. Uh, just kind of got into it with some friends. You know, all we did I guess my, my dad and brother was farm, and of course, we're, I'm back there, and we ca we still cattle farm today, but uh, when I was nine or ten, got into hunting with a with a buddy, and got into it, you know, really, really heavily, and really got into bow hunting early on. I killed my first deer with a rifle when I was ten, uh, killed my first deer with a bow uh, when I was eleven. And then I was hooked on the bow ever since. Now I still rifle hunt some, but primarily bow hunter. And then from, you know, that, my love of, of doing everything outdoors led me to, to Auburn to pursue a degree in wildlife science. I finished at Auburn in 2005. From there, I went, uh, went to work for a consulting firm in Georgia. Uh, got really lucky with the connections I made there and, and while I was at Auburn. Uh, you know, when it when it comes to, to being in the industry, I got just 
by sheer luck, hooked up with some of the top names in the industry at that time. Uh, Chuck Sykes that owned and, and had the, you know, and still has the management advantage. You yep. know, it was wide open on the outdoor channel. Uh, he he really kind of set me on my path in my career with a, you know, a heavy influence mentor, you know, through my first two or three years uh, in the industry. And then we worked on some, some really premier properties uh, in Georgia. I'll, I'll leave the owners out because it's been a pretty private part of the world for a long time. But uh, I got to really see behind the curtain of what Southeastern management looked like when money didn't matter. You know, what you could actually grow if, uh, you know, you put all your weight behind managing for whitetail or turkeys or quail, either, you know, either of those three. And uh, so I, you know, learned a lot about about timber doing that because, you know, in the south, we're in the pine belt. So we're always dealing with pine trees. Uh, so that education led me into working for a timber company. Okay. And for, uh, yep. I went to work for a timber company. It was a small timber company called Satara. Uh, they're, they're still around today. They uh, bought, sold, and they're relatively small. But I was over their wildlife sector of their businesses we we did consulted and then we had a lease program on about 350,000 acres in four states wow uh, so so at one time i was overseeing uh, it was north of a thousand hunting clubs in four states uh, so you know how that is it, it it began to be more paperwork and uh managing people much more than it was managing wildlife uh, and then that particular company sold uh, a big package where i was living and instead of moving around i chose to go a different route and at, at that time uh, and, and he still is chuck sykes was our director of game and fish uh, here in alabama and got to talking to him and they were trying to re-establish the technical assistance program in alabama so i hired on as the technical assistance coordinator and we put together a staff of technical assistance biologists that was, you know, strictly built around education, uh, you know, of the public, working with DMAP and trying to get more knowledge into the hands of landowners, you know, at a low cost, which it was at a low, low cost of free. You know, everything we did, you know, was uh, supported by, you know, the PR funds and things like that. And people really didn't realize that they had access to that information. And, uh, you know, it just grew from there. But the one common thing that, that I saw while working with private landowners is we'd give them the best information that we had, you know, the, the best scientific information and, and land management uh, suggestions. And, you know, we we do really in-depth plans and, you know, follow up with them month or two down the road and a year down the road and what have they done and the vast majority of them was absolutely nothing the plan set on the shelf because they couldn't find anybody to implement it and uh that that gave me the right idea to come out and start a business and be the one that actually implemented those plans so i've been doing that for the last four years wow and you think that that was a that is a common denominator across people in general is just I don't, I don't know if it's 
intimidation or time or not having the equipment or whatever it may be where plans don't get not or what do you think on that yeah i think it's a multitude of factors you know now with all the social media youtube you know the the information you know is at your fingertips but you can take that information in but being able to implement it I, you know, I think the biggest holdup is people are scared to, to screw up. Uh, yep. And then probably the, the second one is, well, I don't have the equipment to take that on. Uh, you know, they, they see folks like, you know, myself and uh, other companies out there that are doing big projects. And they they want to they want to do those projects, but they just don't know how to get started. When in reality, take what you've got, get started, work at it, you know, over time. And you're going to get results, you know, as long as you're you're following good techniques and, and good information. You know, I think I think that's the same reasons we see up here in the Midwest on the plans we work on is the same exact reasons people want some help. You know how to get started. I had these ideas in my head. I just don't want to screw it up and have to restart or, or start over. Can you, you know, a bunch of great ideas. Thank you. I, I knew that's what I wanted to do, but now I now I have the confidence to go do it. We get a lot of that too. So I think even with yeah. all the information out there, paralysis by analysis and and being afraid to screw up uh, holds a lot of people back. I, I, I think you're right. And then, you know, there there's a lot of good information, you know, put out by states. Like when I was with Wildlife and Fisheries, we had a lot of people that I, I guess it's the old adage that if it's, cheap or free it's no good that uh you know they just didn't utilize the resources that they had because they didn't feel like they were good resources because they didn't cost anything uh which is the furthest from the truth uh you know my my partner matt brock in a podcast you know state biologist find uh, chris cook feel great you know state biologist there's current information that you can glean from the state and then most people just don't treat it that it's equal to what they're having to pay for sure which is you know it's one it's not true but two it's you know knowing what i know now uh, <laughs> uh you know i'm glad i can make a living it, it, it you know and implement it but uh i wish folks did you know really have the belief that the free information that they could get was as good uh, as it is if you had to pay for it because really it is yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't think a lot of people talk about all the free available programs that are out there, government, statewide, whatever it may be. Probably because, you know, the people out there doing a lot of promotion or have their own private companies, right? Like, you know, I have a company, that's you have it. a company, like why talk about the stuff for free when you can yeah, I I see I see where that's going. But for a for a just getting things done and getting boxes checked in the plan and moving forward, um, time, money, everything, taking advantage of what's out there already paid for. I see I'm that's, I'm doing that more and more. The older I get, the more I do this. There's no question about it. No, no, no doubt. I mean, time we hear it, I mean, almost every day when we're on, on the phone or you know, meeting with a client is just look, I've got the means to do this, I just don't have the time. Yeah, and of course I, you know, I'm the same way. Uh, I, you know, we hire folks to to do jobs that we're not experts at or practitioners at. You know, we could learn to do them, but uh, you know, we're much more profitable doing the things that we're good at. We'll hire people 
people to do the things that they're good at. Yep. Leave it to the expert and in that field. I'm I agree. And speaking of speaking of time, you you didn't only start a, a wildlife consulting company. I think you have a couple other things going on too, right? <laughs> I do. <laughs> uh, so I'm a I'm a broker with a company uh called Tut Land Company. We're primarily, you know, southeastern land sales group. Uh, I opened a, a brokerage show oh, back earlier this year. It, I guess it was toward the end of May. And uh, I've got five or six agents there in my office with me now. Primarily do, do land and recreational timber sales. But because uh, where I live there in Gunnersville, I've got, you know, a recreation or I mean, a, excuse me, a residential agent or two because of the, the lake effect there, you know, mm. big homes on the lake. But uh, uh, two of my buddies, a guy named uh, Taylor McMurtry, who is uh, my marketing guru, and then Matt Brock, who is a, a biologist buddy of mine, we, we started a podcast. We really hadn't launched yet, but it, it's going to be called Southern U, and it, it's for everything. It's going to be land-centric and just centered around the Southeast, because there's a lot of different podcasts like this one, uh, you know, that's scattered across the country, but primarily they're they're dealing with things in the Northeast and in the Midwest, and uh, we wanted to, to bring something to the folks in the Southeast that was really going to be centered around how we do things, you know, here in the in the Deep South, and, and you know, primarily probably going to heavily focus on Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and, and Louisiana. Uh, you know, Florida is a different creature unless you talk about North Florida, which that's just an extension of, of Alabama there. So it, we don't treat things much different there. But uh, that and then also, you know, we, we run a, a cattle farm there at home. So really got four major irons in the fire. But, uh, you know, it's enough to keep you busy. Yeah, no, no kidding. I think uh, I'm pretty interested in, in your in your Southern U uh, company and and program that you're getting going. I know we have a lot of listeners down that way that are going to probably take advantage and hop on over there and grab your content too. So, um, you know, I got a good buddy in, in Mississippi that's been on, uh, been down to his place a few times. It's just, uh, yeah, maybe it is different landscape and and some of the practices you do maybe more fire than we do and whatnot. But at the same time. A lot of it can be um, generally, you know, the same information, but just different nuances, right? Nuance a little different, maybe the way you do it. That's it. That that that's exactly right. I mean, the principles still apply. Uh, it's just we 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 tend to go about things a little bit differently here in the in the south. I mean, we're I'm not going to say dominated by pine, but it's pretty heavy to the the pine side of things and. Managing pines, I, I tell people every day that I had much rather walk onto a new piece of property and it be an unthinned pine plantation as to a closed canopy hardwood forest because we, we just have so many more tools at our disposal from the get-go uh, than, than we do when we're, you know, in bottomland hardwood or mountain hardwoods than we have, you know, here in our state. Let's let's talk about that. What exactly would you say are are some of the differences? And and I may know, but if you had if you're working on both, you got maybe some bottomland hardwoods or some some mountainous hardwoods, and you got your your pine stands. I guess let's let's do a little bit of a comparison on on how you treat each of those at maybe a high level. It, well, the the big thing now is the logging force. Uh, you know, if you want to separate out the mountain hardwood from the bottomland, uh, it's 
unless you're doing a really large harvest or a clear cut, it's extremely tough to get a logger uh, to move in to mount hardwood tracks. You know, they're most of those loggers, they, they need to be run, you know, with a saw crew and steel cable skid. Yep. And there's just not many of those crews left. So, you know, we're, we're looking at heavily mechanized crews, uh, you know, track cutters and things like that that are doing our mountain hardwood. And there's just not many of them for us here in North Alabama. And you get, you get a little further north and you, you pick up a few more options. But unfortunately, we just don't have them. Uh, you know, bottom land, hardwood, not, not as hard to deal with because uh, we've got the logging force once you get into central South Alabama, we got the logging force to handle big hardwood tracks. Uh, but, you know, how we're going in and cutting them and, and thinning them, you know, is, is, is different. And we, we rely heavily on, uh, you know, some contract foresters and uh, some friends of mine that, that we have on staff part-time that are registered foresters. Because here in Alabama, uh, our board of registered foresters is, is pretty ticky on whether or not you can give you know, forest management advice. And in Alabama, they'll they'll ding you if you're trying to give forest management advice and you're not a registered forester. So, you know, we, we have to play by the rules there because I'm not a registered forester and we don't we don't have one full-time on staff. So we, we do a lot of contract work or uh, put guys on part-time to do those jobs. But uh, we do a lot of heavy thinning when it comes to pine. Uh, hardwood, I would say we would, a lot of folks would call it a seed tree cut. We're going to go in and we're going to leave, you know, particular mass producing trees, depending on what we've got on site, and try to open the ground, you know, the forest floor up, get get more vegetation, just like you guys would. Yep. Uh, but the, the pine is kind of where we, we change the game a little bit, and it really depends on the species. Uh, we worked on a project uh, while I was at the state, and then after I left the state, continued working with the, the landowner where he had an unthinned pine plantation in the, the first meeting we had. He said, hey, you know, I want to hunt wild quail before I die on, on this property. And, of course, guys got large acreage, got the funds he needs to to, to work on the property. And uh, he actually did a translocation project with tall timbers to, to establish uh, a huntable population. And that, that's still ongoing. We still do covey counts and all that out there to make sure things are going well. But, you know, he took that unthinned pine plantation down to a basal area of a, you know, between 30 and 40. Uh, so wow. you take an unthinned plantation down to that, you know, it, it's just a world changer. Uh, obviously, we had some issues with that, uh, with, with wind damage. But, you know, he wasn't in it for the timber, so it really didn't matter. Uh, you know, if it's if it's just turkey and deer, we're obviously not not going to go that heavy on our our thinning. We're going to try to hit that 60 mark. And you know, our traditional thinning here, from a timber stand side of things, for industrial timber, that you know they're going to be trying to hover around that 70 mark, pretty close. So we're going heavier than that, but not not drastically unless we've got uh, a quail focus. Sure. Sure. And are these and pines then, normally, are they longleaf? Are they loblolly? What are you normally running into down there? It, it depends on what part of the state you're in. Uh, North Alabama uh, and, and the majority of Alabama, especially industrial forest, is going to be uh, loblolly pine. But uh, we have several states that get on the, or 
several counties that get on up into the central part of the state that are going to be, you know, heavy to the long leaf side of things. And then in North Alabama, we're, we're pretty heavy to the short leaf side of things. Uh, you know, that's, that's been a relatively new deal for us is folks wanting to manage for short leaf. And then of course that's, that's coming behind the short leaf initiative and NRCS funds and the, the big push to, to manage for short leaf. So that's been, you know, the last 10 years that I've seen that uptick. Um, but it's, it's been interesting to see that because it, it's a different, it's a different ball game for us managing short leaf stands. Interesting. So when, when you're, managing a lot of these these pine stands how often are you running into kudzu every day <laughs> yeah <laughs> between kudzu and kogan grass we uh we we do a lot of herbicide application uh and primarily doing doing kogan grass because we on the properties that we're managing on a you know a monthly basis or, or you know or on clients on retainer we're able to control the the kudzu fairly well mechanically uh, we can you know knock a fire lane around it that way we can access it with atvs utvs and keep it from growing as long as the the landowner you know doesn't want to have to go to the expense of flying it with a helicopter and spraying it and when it's in when it's in the edge of a hardwood stand you know you either take it or you, you kill it all and so generally we try to handle it as best we can with UTVs, ATVs, uh, in hardwoods just to keep it from, from growing throughout the stand and uh, try to limit our our hardwoods to harsh chemical exposure. Okay. And then with, with the pines, are you normally using if, if it's pines, we're if it's pines, we're we we will burn, you know, under it through it. Uh but we're gonna treat it with a with a helicopter most of the time. Interesting. It's just it's just it's just easier to get on top of if we can do a, a, a broadcast spray with a helicopter. And the same with privet. Uh, depending on what side it's on, we're going to deal with privet either by hand, uh, mechanical, on, on big privet stands, especially in uh, in hardwood. We can navigate small mulchers around, mulch it to the ground. And as soon as it comes back, we'll just hit it with life safe and, and, you know, knock it back. We don't ever get 100% control, but uh, we can seriously hurt it and uh, generally get 80 to 85% of it under control. Wow. And what, what type of herbicide are you using for the um, kudzu via helicopter? Generally, it's a mix, but uh, once they care of the uh, kudzu, is the escort. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, the, the one stand I was on down there in, at my at my buddy's place, it was uh, it had kudzu climbing all over the pines, all over the trees, all over everything. It was wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It 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 can be really bad if left unchecked in places, especially in a thin pine stand, because it you know it's able to get so much sunlight and it just really really gets its wheels under it, and it, and it can take off, uh, you know, a long way in in a year's time. So do you guys ever keep any of it around for its higher protein content or is that more of a <laughs> is that more of a we, fallacy and it's not worth the squeeze? No, we actually do. Uh from time to time if we've got a, a little spot that, that we we know we can keep machinery around and we've got a, a landowner that, that's there a lot or we're on the, the property, you know, every week or two, uh then then we will leave some of it. But 
if it's a big spot, generally we try to get it under control. Uh, I won't mention any names, but I, I actually, when I was first out of college, uh, I know a landowner that actually planted some in a river bottom uh, because they they didn't have a lot of you know a lot of groceries there where they were at, uh, and he he wanted some and it was not it was not a good idea. <laughs> it's it's gone left unchecked and uh, you know it it has hurt his property values. Now I'm sure the deer and the hogs love it, you know, getting in it. But uh, from a property value standpoint, it was a big mistake. Just because of the of the cost to kind of turn that around and get back to square that's, one, is that what you mean? That's it, yeah. Uh, because, it, you know, it was hardwood dominated, and it, it's just costly to treat in hardwoods. So it, it just, you know, I, I would never recommend anybody transplant kudzu, but... I, I do know of one, one case where it happened. If you guys are wondering if you should buy or sell property right now in Michigan, be sure to get a hold of Chad Thalen over at Midwest Lifestyle Properties. I've been friends with Chad for a long time. He's been a partner of the podcast for quite a few years now, and he just proves to be a resource to me over and over again. Chad has been helping me understand the real estate side of things, answer any questions I have, help me see through some of the technical stuff that I might not be trained for in this in this area, and just knows ground, knows habitat, programs to get stuff, put it on your ground, the government can pay for, all around, very knowledgeable guy over at Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Guys, if you're looking to buy or sell a piece of recreational ground. I mean, he even sells ground with farms and, and houses on it too. But if you're looking to buy a piece of ground or sell yours, give Chad a call. Chad is on Facebook at Chad Thalen, Land Specialist, Midwest Lifestyle Properties. You can also find him on our website at Habitat Podcast. The market is still hot for rec properties. And I would call Chad right away to get your property listed and sold. If you're on the lookout for a brand new property, again, Chad has his fingers in a lot of different circles and can find a piece for you. Check him out, Chad Thalen, Midwest Lifestyle Properties on Facebook and at HabitatPodcast.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, shoot, our our Michigan DNR used to recommend planting uh, autumn olive way back when, too. So apparently, uh, you know, things... Oh, ours, ours did, too. Did they? Okay. Yep, yep. We uh, There's a big WMA in southeast Alabama, Barber WMA, where in the last few years, they've actually been trying to control it and take back the areas they planted, but they absolutely did. They planted it on state-owned land and recommended it. Uh, and you know, it did its thing and it, 
it, it took over. It did its thing. Exactly right. <laughs> That's it. All right. So staying on kind of the, the wildlife consulting side of things here, um, what do you find your your day-to-day filling up with? I'm sure it's different depending on which time of the year. You know, you're you're a vitalized seed dealer. I know you you do food plots and stuff too, but what what are you what's yep. kind of your your major your major projects, maybe your top three practices that you guys are doing all the time for the biggest um you know, return on the dollar type thing? Uh, I mean, number one is prescribed fire. Uh, you know, number two, because of, of what we've kind of built our business around and, and that's uh, new site development, we do a lot of dirt work construction and, and that's year round for us. So, with you know, with me being in the real estate industry, I sell a lot of tracks and they're primarily recreational tracks and most of them are not developed so you know that turns into a business opportunity for me you know in the uh, consultant side of things where we we actually draw up a plan and, and, and put it into place so we we don't do just a, a ton of jobs through the year uh, like one one client has taken up most of our time this year and it you know it's a 530 acre project where we uh, built a barn dominium on it. Uh, we're in the process now of a couple of, of duck ponds and finishing up some thinnings and roads. So we do, you know, whole property design and development. Uh, so it's it's kind of hard to pinpoint, you know, two or three top things. But uh, number one is obviously prescribed fire. Number two would be the dirt work and the design of, of food plots and then, you know, planting those food plots. That, that's obviously where you guys play a big role for us yeah no for for sure and and i know a little bit more about about your business now and kind of how you guys operate so i i appreciate that and prescribed fire uh obviously extremely beneficial tool i wish we could do more of that up here and um you know start to see a little bit more of it but um with the with the dirt work, what are you, uh, is it usually with a dozer? Are you normally doing property infrastructure like roads and, and plots and ponds? Or is it, um, I guess, tell me a little bit more about that. It, it's all of the above. Right now on that particular site, we've got two dozers and an excavator, you know, on the ground, uh, clearing fields. And, uh, you know, obviously, if we're building a structure, we got to build site pads and things like that. Uh, so we've, on that track, we've put in about 35 acres of food plots. Nice. Uh, a couple of them, you know, pretty large. Most of them are going to be a couple acres in size is our general average. Uh, and, and that'll depend on our deer density for the area. You know, if we know we've got a really high deer density, we generally uh, err on the side of caution and build pretty large plots so that we can, you know, do do summer mixes and them not get wiped out. Uh, but obviously we're logging on that track, so we're not really doing a, a ton of road work at this point, except for new road construction. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we designed a road to go up through the mountain and uh, just being cut out with the loggers while they're there. And then, uh, you know, obviously being stumped and cleared and built. And then uh, we, we do a lot, or there for a while, we were doing a lot of duck ponds. We, we are doing one on this particular place, but uh, about 40 or 50 miles from our base there in Gunnersville is a big area for, for duck hunting in Alabama. So we do a lot of 
do a lot of duck impoundments, manage a lot of duck impoundments. That's the bulk of our planning in, in reality uh, is uh, plant, plant those uh, duck impoundments. Is that right? Okay. And, I mean, and it's just there's so many of them and they're large. So from an acreage standpoint, that's the, that's the bulk of our plant business, even though we've got, I mean, we've got one client that's got, uh, I think it's 104, 105 acres of fields on uh, 1,300 acres. So that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, that's still sticking around that, you know, that 10% plot mark that everybody likes to talk about uh, or, or whatever. Um, when you guys are doing like on that 530 acre piece, when you guys are doing these one, two acre fields, and some of them may be, may be bigger, what's the style of of hunting are you setting that up for are you are you bow hunting these big fields is this mainly a, a rifle property i know it all depends on the uh, owner and, and their goals but like what are you what's 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 that reasoning it, it is it is strictly going to be owner dependent what they like to do this particular track uh it, it's a partnership so there's two owners one of them is a really big bow hunter the other one is not so <laughs> you know the the one that's not I mean, we've got two fields. Uh, one's going to be around 10 acres, and the other one is five or six. Uh, and that's, that's discounting their big dove field. They've got a 15-acre dove field. Wow. But uh, the, the smaller ones, you, you know, they, they are, even though they're two acres, they are designed to, to bow hunt. You know, they've got twists and turns and pinches in them for, for you know, multiple wins, multiple setups, uh, you know, to be successful. And, you know, we may lay, we may lay timber down while we're, you know, cutting timber and we may cut some trees that, that aren't as marketable as others. And we may build a pinch point. We may force steer where we want them to go, depending on, you know, topography and things like that. So it, it, it but it is owner dependent. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and are you guys, is the deer population, deer density that high in this area where you need you know, that much food, or are you doing it just based on the property size and percentage ratio, or what's your thought there? It, it's a little bit of both. They want to support more deer than they have, so we, we erred on the side of caution. Um, they want to do, you know, the owners, their, their desire was to do some large summer fields, and in that part of the world, if you put, you know, soybeans or, or something like that in a field that's less than four or five acres, they're going to get wiped out. So uh, that's that's one reason uh, that, that Al and I have had so many conversations over the last two or three years. And, you know, I, I posted a video of one of the test plots I did with the, the Nitro Boost this last time. You know, unfortunately, uh, but fortunately, I live in a spot in North Alabama where we don't have deer. Uh, you know, believe it or not, there's some places that don't have deer, and I live in one of them. It, it's no. primarily... It's primarily cattle country, so it's open pastures, a uh, little bit of wood, um, but just closed canopy hardwoods. And well, we've got a few deer, uh, but you know I can count the number of tracks that I've seen, you know, in our in our area where I planted that field. And I wanted to, to plant it you know, where I knew there was no deer, just to see a true tonnage. And uh, you know, it was it was unbelievable. We're, you know, I know y'all use eagle beans. We, we've been around Eagle Beans, and I've known Brad for 20 years now, and they're they're great. But if you don't have enough acres, you know, deer can still wipe them out. So we were looking for something that would, you know, put, put the bill for, you know, those deer 
nitro boost with a good mix has has really filled that hole for us. Uh, I wish that I had gotten to uh, a track before he bush hogged it. I've got one one landowner that uh, he, he can't sit still, so when he's out there, he's wanting to do something. And we had a field of nitro boost planted beside a big sunflower field for dove hunting and uh, two really, really good-sized food plots that, that were straight eagle soybeans. And the only thing that was standing that had anything left in it was the, was the nitro boost. It was uh, the deer wiped it out, and he started bush hogging. And he did end up bush hogging the nitro boost, which, you know, it's kind of one of those beating your head against the wall moments. <laughs> he didn't really understand what he was doing, but he did it. And there was no going back from it. But uh, I can I can attest that they, they will stand up to unbelievable browse pressure. No, and when you... I say they, you know, they wiped out, they wiped out good sized fields. I mean, right there together with only a tree line separate them we had about 17 acres planted in soybeans and about two acres planted in uh sunflowering and they just got mowed to the ground wow wow yeah i i don't remember where you shared that video maybe it was maybe it was via text and al shot it over with that with the guy in the tractor brush hogging the the nitro boost that stuff was pertinent six seven foot tall wasn't it oh it was yeah that that was actually me on my farm there where we don't have any deer uh, okay you know, I, I planted it there just to see what it really did and really to reclaim some, some ground. That part of the farm I recently bought, and uh, we're, we're building on that part of the farm. And I was like, well, this is as good a place as any to test it. I know this is terrible pasture ground that has not been taken up or taken care of in years. I'm going to put this out. I'm going to plant it without being real specific to what I'm doing, and I'm just going to see what it does. And, uh, you know, it's exactly what we did. We, we put out a bag to the acre. We broadcast it. We didn't drag it. We didn't do anything. We just put it on top of the ground like many of our, our, our deer hunters do. Uh, you know, whether it be time or two, they just don't know better. Uh, and, and you saw what, what I came up with. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I no mean, kidding. it was, you know, I'm sitting in a 140-horse tractor there with a 18-foot bat wing behind me, and it's, you know, the – the soybeans and the, the hemp and all that are you know, up to up to my level, you know, where I'm sitting in the tractor. So yeah, it's such a such a great video. I appreciate you sending that. And uh yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of great results across the country um with with the program. So really, really appreciate that and, and the kind of words. I know, you know, up here I just I talked to a guy the other day, um he had a little little five acre parcel behind his house. He shot a nice two hundred pound dress, white tail, open a night on on the vitalized. So you know it's a lot wow. of great mixes out there, but we're tending to have a lot of cool results so far, which is which is fun to hear. You know, it's it's a good time. Yeah. And I you know, I rarely hear compliments from from landowners that's just in this business they're always going to find what they don't like not what they do like and uh the, the the last the last couple of years uh folks have just really really been impressed with the food plots and we changed nothing about what we did other than changing the seed varieties yeah that's that's very interesting um i never thought about thought about it that way the feedback that that you guys get and that's awesome to hear that's really really great to hear um oh we, we've been pleased and like i told al you know when we started i was like you know 
we'll use it. I'm not going to push it. I'm not going to push you guys until I know personally what it's going to do. And, and I've just always been that way. Uh, but but now I'm confident I can push it. Yes, sir. Now I mean, we we truly appreciate that. Glad to hear that you're getting you're getting good feedback. Um, that that's an interesting point that I've never really talked about. What kind of feedback do you normally? You said a lot of us normally negative. Not a lot of us normally negative. That sounds bad, but. What are landowners usually providing feedback on in your world? Um, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what if it's if it's similar to what we're getting up here, or or if there's you know differences. I'm sure it is because what we find is, is a lot of these landowners that work we're working with, they don't know what they don't know. True. And you, you try to explain, you know, what you're gonna do and what results are gonna look like. But until they see it, they really don't understand what's taking place. Uh, and because we do a lot of logging, uh, you know, we've got we've got guys that will be like, "Wow, I didn't expect it to be that open," or "Oh my gosh, it looked like a bomb went off." And and I, you know, especially when hardwood logging, it does. It looks like a disaster. And I I do my best to tell people, you know, what it's going to look like. And, and even show them pictures of jobs and take them to jobs that we've done. But until they see it on their place, they just really don't understand. And it, it's not, you know, it's not negative feedback. It's, it's a lot of times it's just like, wow, I didn't really understand this is where, where we were headed. Uh, you know, some of your more educated on, on wildlife clients or, or folks that have owned property for a long time, uh, they get it. They've seen it. Uh, but, but some don't, you know, the, the particular client I was uh, discussing that, that bush hogged the fields down, you know, we, we were doing, I, I don't know what everybody really calls it these days, but I've just always kind of called it throwing mow, uh, in some small fields that he had just because this soil structure is just absolutely terrible. It, it's pine plantations, it's small fields, we're old logging decks that we cleaned up. And he was just having a fit that we weren't disking, you know, twice a year to put in food plots. And I'm like, well, you know, I explained the, the, the purpose behind us not disking and breaking the ground twice a year. And uh, he's like, okay, so I, I follow you, but I still want to disk the ground. <laughs> so we're still, we're still having to disk his food plots twice a year. Because he wants a spring plot and he wants a fall plot. Uh, re regardless of, of the results that we were able to show him doing it the other way, he just said, "I, you know, my place, I'm paying the bills. I want it this way." And that's when you tip your hat, say, "Yes, sir." Not the way I do it, but that's how you'll get it. Sure, that that's so, a great, uh, great point. I think you hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about not being able to see the long game, like. You and I have been doing this long enough. You've been doing it a lot longer than me. In terms, you know what, it's, what the end goal is going to be. You you can see it when you get to a property. Right? I can see it when I get to a property. Um, I think it's hard for people to to really see the forest through the trees, if you will, uh, and, and really understand what it's going to look like in five, six, seven, eight years. That, that's right. And occasionally we, we turn up with a client that, that understands the long game. And even better, uh, you know, once every couple of years, we'll turn up with a client that says, hey, this is what you do for a living. If it was yours, that's how I want you to do it for us. Yeah. Just make sure we know what things are going to cost. And, and the, the project that we're doing on the 500 
30 acre 535 that we're doing now you know we've been working on the last year i mean that's exactly what they told me they said look we don't do this for a living you do you run run all the cost us, and we'll say yes or no and i you know they they haven't balked on me yet i'm sure i'm sure it'll come but they haven't yet <laughs> well as long as you're transparent that's all that's all everybody really needs to be and, and honest and yeah it's it's gonna that's happen it. And a lot, you know, a lot of people take on these projects and don't don't really understand what the costs are going to be. Uh, you know, you get on doing a, a, a total site development project that you're you're doing start to finish. There's nothing about it cheap. I mean, nothing. Uh, but one thing that we're able to do, you know, because of the, the amount of pine timber that we're working with, generally we're able to roll in, you know, some habitat management and food plot building, things like that in our timber harvest. And timber harvest, you know, most of the time pays for it. Not all the time. This particular instance, we're, we're thinning 235 acres of really, really good pine. It's going to pay 90 to 95% of their cost for developing that 500-acre track. Wow. Wow. That's that's quite a bit. And, that I mean, that's huge. And we're we're kind of dealing with the same thing on on my northern piece. Um, we finally got a good a good bid in for the hardwoods. You know, the market isn't where it was at a year ago or a year and a half ago. Um, but no, no, my, right. my logger told me it's it's the nicest stand of maple he's ever he's ever seen. He's been doing this his whole life. So this is going to be turn out advantageous for for us in in terms of putting some assets back in the bank account and being able to, to get the food plots, you know, get the orchard going, the infrastructure on the property, that whole thing. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And when you can pitch it like that, not even really a pitch, but when you can explain it like that, um, it really, it really helps a lot. You know, you're better habitat, getting your plan done. Like it all works. It, it does. It really does. And of course, then you run into the guys and say, Hey, I'm, I'm not logging. Uh, one of our, best customers has become a friend of mine the first time we rode around and met with him uh my, my partner was talking about you know doing some thinning because it's primarily hardwood and uh he said well that's the one thing i'm not doing he said i'm just not going to have a logging crew on this place and he's got 13 1400 acres and it really needs a logging crew so when we started talking about thinning timber putting some plots in because he didn't have any plot uh man he Set down a couple of track hose, a couple of dozers, tore it down, piled it, burned it. Wow. Which was mind blowing to me. But he had the financial wherewithal to do it and he did not want the logging crew. So, you know, it's kinda of one of those guys one of those guys you just kinda of tip your hat to and say, More power to you. I wonder if there's some some history there with the logging crew or something something that, you know, <laughs> he might have he might have dealt with in the past. Who knows? It, that's right. And and I think I think it's just a, an overall misconception of the logging industry. I, you know, I, I've known I've known that individual for for several years, and to my knowledge, he he, you know, had never owned any type of property to have you know any relationship or past relationship with a logger. I, you know, I think it's just misconceptions because we we hear it all the time, just the horror stories of of the logging industry, and it's you know, are there some bad ones? Yeah, there are. You know, there's there's bad ones in every industry, sure. but by and large, they're trying to do a good job. And let's face it, logging. You know, when you're cutting trees and, and moving trees and piling trees, 
you're going to disturb the site. There, there's no way around it. So, you know, when folks are realistic and understand that that site's going to change because of the activity that's taking place, but in the long term, it's going to be better off for it, then that, that's when you know you, you've got somebody that you can work with easily. Those that, that don't really wrap their head around that uh, can't accept, you know, can't accept that there's going to be some disturbance there. Uh, that that makes it tough. And one of the common lines that I, I tell folks, just because it's pretty to you doesn't mean it's, you know, useful to wildlife. And most of the time, it's not. Uh, you know, folks think, especially a lot of these large landowners, generally most of ours live off-site in, in really nice homes, big communities, and they're used to things being manicured. And the last thing that a wildlife recreational property needs to look like is a manicured golf course. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, I, I could see I could see how that could be uh, a common theme, uh, or just maybe just like uh, something you're used to, and then going into the habitat it world, is. world where it's, it's not the same. And it's crazy from the because you know we're in an area that we have a lot of cattle, a lot of pasture land, and. If they're looking at a stand of bahia or a stand of fescue, oh man, they're tickled. That's pretty. I cut hay off that and it looks good. But it's, you know, devoid of wildlife. Right. And we try to explain that and tell them, hey, we want to go kill that stand of grass and we want we want this to be all about native. Uh, you know, we may even may even suggest buying and establishing some more native seed. And that just, you know, a lot of times that's mind blowing the folks that you want to kill a pretty grass or a pretty field of fescue <laughs> <laughs> well, as soon as you say fescue or, or grass i'm over here going yeah ugh, you know so exactly well, what what would you say i guess what would you say to to the listeners about one major difference from where you're at to you know maybe the midwest uh we got a lot of folks that down by you listening um that is maybe i don't want to say misconception just something that we talk about all the time where you're shaking your head like that doesn't work down here. Oh, I mean, man, a lot of the principles I mean, my, are the same like we talked about, but is there anything that that sticks out that you guys would do different for sure? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the number one thing that we hear from customers is they want to they want a hinge cut. Okay. And, uh, does it have its place here in the south occasionally? And I mean occasionally, but not not as much as it is done you know, in the, in the Midwest, we were, we were fortunate enough to have one of the guys that, that I respect a tremendous amount in the, in the habitat management side of things, a guy named Jim Ward. He, Jim came down and spent two weeks with us in Alabama and Mississippi on properties that, that we owned and managed when I was with the timber company, uh, because our, our CEO, you know, was, was in Ohio. And he wanted Jim Ward to come down and do hinge cutting on a place that was a, a really high-end piece of property that, that we were managing in Alabama that grew top-end bucks for anywhere. I mean, I, I had put my hand on uh, Boone and Crockett's and one over 200 inches wow. off of that particular place uh, in the past. And Jim came down here and spent two weeks. And, and did he do some hinge cutting? Yeah, he did. Uh, but when he left, he said, you know, I really didn't know what to expect here. And he said, I have learned more about what I need to do, what I can do and can't do in, in this, this part of the world than, than I, you know, than I taught y'all. And 
and really he did impart a lot of knowledge on us. But in the southeast, most anywhere you turn, deer have got a multitude of places to bed that, you know, got, you know, quality natives, uh, you know, unless it's just in the pasture setting. And, the, you know, where I live in, in North Alabama, where it's pasture setting and closed canopy hardwood, yeah, hinge cutting has its place. But that's one of the very few. Very interesting. Yeah, Jim. Jim's a friend of mine. Great, great guy. I'm sure you guys had a great time spending time with him down there. And yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Even even my view on on hinge cutting from when I started to now has has evolved. Right? It's just the more knowledgeable you are, and the it's all about the different property too. Um, it's it not is. A, it's not a general prescription. So, and that's you know I I tell people the same with with cutting timber. Now you know most of the people that we're working for they need to cut timber, um, but it, it's not a you know, a one size fits all. We we've got some that, that don't need to. Uh, we we worked with one particular client when we started the business. He bought you know a track at a really really good buy, and it had already been logged previously more than more than once. Uh, matter of fact, I talked to a timber buyer buddy of mine, and he said he thought in his career he had been on that track eight times. Oh my gosh! So it it had really been picked through hard, and it wasn't. It was one of those properties that wasn't treated well. And I, you know, we told the guy, I said, look, you got two options. Buy something else or come back in, cut what timber, you know, is not beneficial to wildlife and really pour your heart and soul into this place into turning it into more of a savanna. And uh, so we worked with him, you know, heavily on doing that. Took two and a half, three years. So it, it and getting a logger was a big part of that but we went back in and cut all the leaning trees you know what was left was a lot of uh, maple hickory sweet gum that, that were really low value timber trees at that particular point and low value wildlife trees so we went in thinned it up tried to tried to make the stands look better uh he was able to buy another piece before hardwood for his is hard mass, but the rough the rough part of the track we opened it up, burned it a couple of times, and, and he treats it as a as a savanna. You know, even though it's not it's not a true savanna because of where it lays, it it fits that bill fairly well. And it he went from seeing a deer two a year to you know killing a couple of really nice deer and seeing turkey there in that part of the county for the first time two years ago. Wow. And well, uh, I'm sure you guys know Kyle Liebarger. Yeah. Uh, Kyle actually went out on that track, and, and, you know, the name escapes me, but it was a goldenrod species that he found coming up where we did all that logging that they haven't found it in, I don't think, but one or two other locations. So I, I think Kyle was able to, to grab some seed and propagate that stuff too. So, you know, really, really ended up being a really interesting project has benefits for for more than just the landowner. No kidding. Well, nice work on that. And and to your point, you know, every project seems to be a little bit different, and and knowing how to address each one specifically uh, based on landowner's goals is what's what's most important. So that's that's awesome, man. Well done. Well, I wanted Absolutely. to wrap this up, Jeremy. This has been awesome. I got to have you on again, man. It's been a great conversation. I want to hear about Southern U, your plans with that. 
and uh, let you plug that, and then hit some rapid-fire questions. We'll get you out of here. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, you know, our, our focus for Southern U is, is educational uh, primarily. Now, we're going to throw some hunting in there because all three of us are big, big hunters, big bow hunters. Uh, so we're going to do, you know, filming some hunts and doing a little bit of travel. I'm going to film a hunt in Kansas later on in the year. But to start with, we're going to really hit the basics trying to educate that first-time landowner or that first-time hunter on you know hunting techniques management techniques and we're gonna we're gonna boil it down to even hey what do i do i'm just getting into this i'm financially stable and i want to buy a place what are the things to look for when buying a place how do i go about getting financing uh what are the you know the pitfalls that i need to watch for to make sure i don't by the wrong place and then you know we're as it gets into turkey season we're going to dig into the turkey management and uh you know more of the site management but we're going to do uh you know bi-weekly uh bi-weekly podcast we're going to be on the OKS hunter platform uh i think we actually signed those those contracts this morning uh but got got some great sponsors you guys obviously are, are one of them we appreciate that but uh, really, it, it's all about education, uh, you know, to the southeastern or the southern hunter and land, landowner. Perfect, man. Now, looking forward to, to following along and, uh, you know, learning more. That's, that's what we all like to do here at Habitat Podcast is continue to learn. So that's great. I wish you, obviously, the best of luck in that venture. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, if you're ready, Jeremy, I'm going to hit you with the rapid fire questions. All right. I'm as ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's let's do this. If you're at Deer Camp, what's your favorite beverage? Oh, at Deer Camp, man, this is gonna sound crazy, but I am a sucker for a cold glass of milk. There you go. I think we may have had one other answer with that before. I'm not. I can't recall. (laughs) Moving along. Favorite venison recipe? Oh, grilled backstrap. Any certain seasoning or or marinade? Ah. I like to use a, a local marinade. It's called Pelletier's. Uh, okay. It's a it's an Alabama marinade. It's it's not quite as strong as the Moors or Dale's. And then uh, just finished off with uh, you know a little bit of garlic, black pepper, and salt. Perfect SPG. I love it. Fixed blade or mechanical blade broadheads? Oh, fixed. What do you hunt out of the most, or what do you prefer to maybe set your properties up the most on? Preset stands, blinds, or mobile hunting? Preset stands. Food, water, or cover? You had to pick one. Most important. Oh man, <laughs> I would say that depended on where I was, but I, I I would tend to just straight off answer on food. Your favorite habitat tool or implement? Oh man, that's a that's gonna be a cutout machine. What's that now? A, a cutout machine or a fellow buncher? Nice. Okay. Logging Perfect. equipment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fellow, I got you. And you, and your favorite tree? Favorite tree, definitely the swamp chest. Very nice. Do you hunt, do you hunt over those? Do you hunt out of those? Do you? Uh... If if I can if I can find one, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna hunt over it. Uh, you know my, and I I struggle saying that because we don't have many. That's why I gravitate to it. Uh, when I'm at home in North Alabama, that answer probably gonna change to a chinkapin oak uh, because we've got them. That makes sense. Yep. Perfect. Well, Jeremy, I really appreciate you hopping on here today, man. Good luck in Kansas. And um, I'll be sure to put a link to 
yourself in the show notes. Any, if anybody wants to reach out to you, where's the best place to hit you? Uh, you can hit me on uh, the Southern U uh, on Facebook or uh, my email is j.ferguson, that's F-E-R-G-U-S-O-N, at Awesome. Well, thanks again, sir. You guys be safe out there in Kansas and uh, oh, maybe get a cold front coming through. Hopefully cool some things down for you. I don't know, but uh, hang in there. Good luck. Yeah, that, I appreciate it. Have a good one. Even touch. Thanks, Jeremy. See you, buddy. Yep, bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the, the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further, we have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors. Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear, Packer Max Cultipackers, Morse Nursery, Acres.com, Downburst Cedars, First Light, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.